So it's the first Sunday of Advent. Very exciting for those people who love to anticipate Christmas. Um, a season of anticipation, a season of looking forward, um, beginning to look at um, the revelation of God's love through history, culminating in the coming of Jesus. In a sense, this is the kind of the origin story, if you like, around, around Jesus's coming. Um, I love origin stories, generally. Uh, so superhero films, I'm quite picky. I don't like all of them, but I love the ones that have origin stories in them. The bits that help you understand who this superhero was before they maybe received their superpower or were famous or whatever it is that goes right back perhaps to when they were younger um, and, and just helps you get that person in context. They're certainly my favorite superhero stories. And today we're going to be focusing actually on, if you like, the origin story of Abraham, so who becomes Abraham. So we're remembering the patriarchs today, so very uh, appropriate thing to be looking at in that journey of revelation towards the coming of Jesus. Um, but what was his origin story? Where did he come from? Who was his family? How do we kind of get behind um, what was feeding into where he was coming from? So the passage we're going to look at is the second half of Genesis 11. We had the first half last week, the Tower of Babel. And I don't know if you remember before uh, Adam preached on that. He said how grateful he was not to have been given the genealogy in Genesis 10. All those difficult names to pronounce. He was like, whoop, didn't get that one. So uh, we're going to be looking at the genealogy in Genesis 11. And in the interdependent spirit of supporting one another in little church, Claire is going to come and read it for me. <laughs> and can I just thank Judith for being back up if Claire couldn't come? They've both learned this genealogy. Doubly impressive. Thank you, Claire. Okay, so starting at verse 10. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When, had, sorry, when Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. 
Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Thank you, Claire. Big thank you. So, I must admit, when I looked back to remember what passage I was preaching on today, because I'd sort of got this date in my diary quite a long time ago, I looked it up and I thought, really? We've had all these great stories, haven't we, through Genesis. I was like, okay, so I messaged Adam back. Can I just check? It's not sort of a typo. No, no. And then Wayne reassured me, actually, Sonia's actually very important, quite an important, I think you've missed something here. So, yes, um, turns out it is, and it's been a joy, actually, to reflect on it over the last couple of weeks. But why did I have that reaction? I think there's two facts here. Firstly, of course, all of that list of names. Um, and secondly, I think also the age fact, right? I was like, oh, that's a bit of a distraction, if nothing else, a bit of a curveball, all these people living sort of hundreds and hundreds of years. So I just want to sort of touch briefly on that, partly so it doesn't distract anyone else in the way that perhaps it distracted me. Um, So there's different perspectives, aren't there, on how Genesis treats time, whether it's here or in other places, days, years. Um, There are different interpretations of this. Is it symbolic? Do those days or years mean eras? Um, Or is it literal? Um, So, I mean, I think one of the important things to say, as Wayne has said, is actually whatever of those perspectives we take, that isn't the point of the passage generally. Um, These passages are not uh, sort of what they're trying to teach us is not wedded to whether that's days, eras or years. So in this case, for example, a symbolic interpretation would be that actually the greater the age, the greater the importance of the person. So there's another contemporary document, the King List, which states a number of kings, some stuff about them, um, lists one of the kings as living 20,000 years Um, And this was a statement of his importance and his significance. So it's entirely possible that in this era, the way that uh, numbers were used is simply different to how we use them today. Or it could be literal. It could be that people just had a different type of longevity that we don't quite understand now, but they did. So I'm, you know, I think there's there's arguments either way. um, And there's lots of interesting things we could say about use of time and use of numbers and symbol in numbers, um, not just in Genesis, actually, but elsewhere in the Bible, which I won't go into now. But suffice to say, just wanted to name that to say um, the main point is that that isn't the point, and let's not let that distract us. Well, actually, it's quite an interesting thing to think about if you want to do so another time. Um, I'd be happy to point you to various things to look at around that. So that's the age. What about the names? Well, each of those names represents a person, doesn't it? And behind every person is a story. And these stories flow down the generations. So each of those individuals, it showed uh, a name, their flow into the next generation. 
And this isn't just a genetic flow. This is a flow of influence. And each of us actually are shaped by influence coming down our families, the people that came before us and the people that came before them and the people that came before them. This is a flow of influence into who we are and where we start our journey, actually. And this is something that can have huge impact um, spiritually in lots of other ways. So actually, this sort of fast forward, if you like, from Noah linking him through to Abraham gives us really important context of who he, who he began to be, where he started his journey and some of the influences that fed into that. And as it gets nearer to him, um, we, it sort of pauses and unpacks a little bit more. So the passage lands in talking particularly about his father and his brothers, his wife, his immediate context, if you like, in nuclear family, and the journey that they started to go on. So we learn that his father had lost a son. Abraham had lost a brother. They were, as we meet him, living in a context of grief, um, of, of brokenness through that, and that actually Abraham's having quite a difficult uh, time himself. His wife is, at the time we meet them, unable to have children. So it gives us this big picture of the flow into where, he, where we meet him and where he begins, but also a little bit more of a close-up into um, the grief um, about people that weren't there, either because they had been and had now died, or, or perhaps because they were longed for um, but hadn't yet come to be. So each name is a person. And of course, the other important thing about that is that God uses people. That in this story of growth of his kingdom, um, it is dependent on people and to an extent on family and obedience. Family impacts all of us. And as we journey towards Christmas, as we start our Advent season of anticipation of that time, I'm aware that this might be particularly poignant for some people, perhaps in some ways for all of us. It's a time when family comes into focus, isn't it? And we begin to think of all the sort of slightly difficult relationships that might be there, um, the things that might sit uncomfortably. And yet the story of Abraham shows us how whilst that did define where he started, he moved on from that. He moved out from that. And actually each of us here who've stepped into being part of God's family are adopted as sons and daughters in his family in this community of the church that's journeying into his love. And there is a freedom that comes from that, a healing that is offered to each of us as we step into being a new creation that we can be sons and daughters of God and, and access his healing and um, that acknowledges where we've come from but doesn't leave us there, that meets us where we are to bring healing, to bring restoration, to be brothers and sisters to one another to move forward in this journey. So at the end of the genealogy, we see Abraham beginning his own journey. So he, his father, his nephew, they move on. They move out from Ur where they were um, towards Canaan, and yet they stop. They stop when they get to Haran. And by the way, it might be a bit confusing, also similar to the name of his brother, differently pronounced in the Hebrew. We just have similar translations, but that's just, um, it's a different place. It's a different thing. Um, so there is a sense at this point in verse 27 that this is a new a new start, a new chapter. So we hear, the, Genesis uses the words, um, this is the account of, and that's a marker in the text. Um, this is the account that tells us, this is a sort of new section, if you like, a new chapter. 
Um, and I think that's quite interesting that at this point, he is stepping forward into a new season of the expansion of God's kingdom. And they set out on a journey. And this is a contrast, a marked contrast to the beginning of the chapter. So as we heard last week, um, even though God had said to Noah, actually, go out and fill the earth, he'd um, commanded this sort of outward movement. Instead, people had stopped and they'd gathered and they'd organized and they'd used new technology for arguably a little bit of a vanity project. Um, Building a tower, building something grandiose, um, probably made them feel quite important and crucially made them feel control of how they were getting to God. Let's build a gateway to God. Let's build a tower to God. We're in control. It's our plan. We'll stop here and we'll build. That's what's going on in the first half of this chapter. And in contrast, in the second half of this chapter, we see God's plan begin to break in. So instead of settling where it's comfortable and building a tower, they move on and they journey actually away from where they'd lived, away from where they were from, and towards a new place, a new destination that they did not know what it was. We're not told actually in this part of the text why they started on that that journey. Um, But lots of places in the Bible, it recounts the story of God's people, of um, his inbreaking of his kingdom. And this is quite helpful because it gives us extra information, if you like, about what's going on here elsewhere. So in Acts 7, for example, in Stephen's speech, he does a little sort of uh, synopsis of some of the Old Testament. And he covers this passage. And he tells us that actually it's at this point that Abraham had been already called by God towards Canaan that it was um, his idea to move on. So I'm just going to read that passage because I think it's quite helpful to put this one in context. So this is from Acts 7, Stephen's speech. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. So we learn from that that setting out on this journey was actually, for Abraham, obedience to God and trust in him. It was Abraham following God's lead. So actually, he's following God's plan rather than cooking up one for himself. This requires listening, not ambition. And actually, it sets up this juxtaposition between the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of God that runs throughout the Bible from this point forward. This self-serving building versus obedience to the call to journey, to journey with God. And it may be that this is where this passage begins to speak to us. Is God calling us to journey from places where he does not plan for us to be? To establish his kingdom, to flourish in new ways, and to help others to do so also. So why did they stop? They've set out. We, we learn from Acts 7 that this is because Abraham has felt called away and onwards. And yet they stop. They get to Haran and they stop. Well, actually, it's another part of the Bible that gives us greater insight, I think, into this. In Joshua 24, when there's another kind of recap of this history, we learn that Terah, Abraham's father, was an idolater. Um, And both Ur and Haran were places where the moon god was worshipped. 
Um, so actually when he got to Haran, so this is a place with a really similar set of idols to where he's come from, similar set of values, a similar set of things that are lifted up. It, it's quite possible that he felt quite comfortable. Ah, this is quite familiar. Um, yeah, I, I kind of connect with these people. I, yeah, I like this place. Let's just stop here for a while. Now that's hypothesis. We don't know why he stopped. Um, but we do know that there was a similar set of idols in Haran and Ur at that time. But I wonder how Abraham felt about stopping. He'd had this call from God to move on, and, and, yet they, and yet they stop here. He knew it was not the destination, but he had to wait. Maybe it was submission to his father's plans. Um, and of course, as we know, this was a hard time for him, as we've said. His um, wife's unable to conceive, and he's still in this context of grief. And again, I wonder if this is a time in his journey that some of us can relate to. Perhaps we feel we've been called into journeying with God, into moving onwards in some way or towards something. And yet, we seem to have stopped. Um, we seem to be waiting for something else. Perhaps we feel in a transient place. We know that where we are is not the destination. It's, so as I say, it seems likely that Tara was distracted by feeling a bit comfortable. But I think the thing that really struck and challenged me out of all of this passage really was the fact that Abraham could have just stopped there. He could have just stopped there. And he would have never lived into what God was calling him to, not just for himself, but for all that flowed from that, from all that he was um, sort of to, to establish, for all of um, the the kingdom expansion that was to come from him, he could have just stopped there and he would never have lived into God's plans. His passivity would have been disobedience. God's kingdom is established when we listen to his voice and when we obey, when we keep moving in our journey with him. And I know that sometimes that's so hard. Um, it can feel a heavy, heavy journey to keep on walking to keep on moving forward. It can feel that there's all sorts of things pulling us back from that. And perhaps this comes back to the beginning of the passage, to that genealogy, to some of our backgrounds, some of our origin stories, some of our context might be some of those very things that make it hard for us to step forward, to step into following God, to step on with following God, to be obedient to what he's calling us to And so I wonder if some of us um, do relate to Abraham's journey in that way. And I'd like us just to reflect on which of those phases, if you like, it might be that we would identify with ourselves. Is it Abraham perhaps before he left Ur in the first place? I imagine he was feeling slightly dissatisfied with where he was um, that he was waiting for this direction from God, this revelation of where he was to go on, where he was to go to. Perhaps we do want to trust rather than build a tower ourselves. We want to find a true gateway to God rather than to try and construct one of our own making. We know we need to leave in some way, but we don't know where. Or perhaps we identify more with Abraham where he lands at the end of this passage, that we've started out, we're heading on, and yet we find we have to wait, we have to stop. Perhaps that's right, perhaps it's patience, perhaps it's not the time. 
Or perhaps actually it is the time to move on, to step forwards. And we need to find the energy to do that and ask for the freedom from anything that holds us back from doing that. Perhaps we want to respond to that promise of Jesus that we can be a new creation, that we can have a new sense of family. Jesus offers us assurance in our destination and a guide on our journey. He calls us, but he also accompanies us. He's with us when things seem hard and like they're not panning out in the way that we want. And his healing does mean that brokenness in our family does not mean we can't start a new chapter. I think he's inviting all of us into a journey, a journey of true fullness of life for all of us and for our families. I think his challenge today is not to settle for Haran, for second best, whatever that looks like for us but to go out on the most exciting journey of our lives. Not one that will always be easy, but one, the only thing, in fact, that will be truly life-giving. And I'd like to ask us to pause as we begin our preparation in this season of Advent, to ask God to prepare us, to prepare us to receive him anew, to journey on with him, and to be open to his healing, to receive Christ in a new way.